yeah, that foster boss thing, you know, that goes over well in our house, I can tell you that for sure, really. Because uh, uh, you should meet foster boss's boss. I don't know who there, but that is. And she's probably sitting right here, our granddaughter is here with No, that's, uh, it's great to be here. As, as Pastor Mark uh, said, I am no stranger to this uh, congregation, this community of faith, and I really always enjoy coming to, to worship together with you. Thanks for leading us in worship and uh, this time of prayer together. Uh, focus that uh, we have, uh, I get a chance to be part of this summer to dive into one of the parables, uh, which I really look forward to. There, there's so much about the parables, isn't that amazing? Parable, parable, pastor probably already shared, para means alongside and bolas means to be called alongside. You, you call alongside of something really familiar in this world to illustrate something which is very unfamiliar in this world, something of this kingdom. So it's a, it's a powerful series. Enjoy, I enjoy stepping into that and uh, looking forward to sharing with you a portion of scripture that uh, is, is outlined for us from Luke chapter 7. But I'd like to share it um, with a bit of a paraphrase, as you might understand, putting it into uh, what we might call a dramatic reading. Let's pray first of all, and then we will get right into the scripture. Lord, thank you for your word, which is sharp. Your word, which is powerful. Really, which digs deep within our innermost, sharper, more powerful than any two-edged sword could to get inside of us, more than a uh, surgeon's scalpel to get within us, to deal with those things that you want us to deal with. As you open up our hearts this day, we pray that we would be receptive to what you want to speak by your spirit. It's your spirit who gave us this word. It's, it's given us for our purposes of day-to-day -day living. And we pray that you would show us what exactly you would want us to do with it. Thank you for your presence here among us, with us. Something we never want to take for granted. And we truly do celebrate that you've called us to follow you. And that as we've, in our own struggles, we have endeavored to do that. We pray you would help us to learn more about how we can help others in that regard as well. Thank you now for these moments around your word. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Simon of Bethany greeted the stranger, at the entrance of his palatial home. The rings on his fingers glittered in the midday sun. Simon greeted this stranger, but in a purposely reserved fashion. He kept his eyes diverted from the large brass basin over at the door. Normally, he would have called his servant to wash a guest's feet, but wasn't sure that it was appropriate for him, a leader of some stature, to honor a stranger in that way. He really knew nothing of this man. The stranger carried a mediocre, albeit growing, reputation, and Simon was actually more curious than anything. He wanted to assess the stranger, but it had to be on his terms. He did not want to be seen as endorsing this Stranger, He certainly did not 
want to give anyone the wrong impression. Still, as they walked past that empty basin, Simon couldn't help but feel a little uncomfortable. Thankfully, the stranger did not appear to notice anything out of ordinary, and soon they were seated together at the table. Simon surveyed the meal with a sense of satisfaction. Each dish, meticulously prepared, spoke again of his status. It pleased him greatly, and, and he wondered if the stranger felt a little bit in awe of the lavish conditions. An awkward silence fell between the two as they began eating. Simon started wondering why he had invited the stranger at all, because he seemed unimpressed, almost oblivious to the privilege of being in place of such influence. Then some relief. That awkwardness was broken by the sound of shuffling feet behind them. Simon assumed it was an overzealous servant bringing the next course before they were finishing the first course. Without turning to acknowledge the servant, Simon raised his hand as a sign to stop. Perplexed when the shuffling noise continued, Simon turned in, in disbelief to see a woman who had no place in his home. Loathing convulsed Simon as he recognized this woman. He had seen her many times waiting outside the west gate, vying for customers. This prostitute was in his house. How did she get in here? What did she want? Before Simon could decide how to deal with the situation, the woman stopped by the feet of the stranger. As she fell to her face, she drew an alabaster flask from beneath her tunic. And placing that flask beneath his feet, she looked straight into the stranger's eyes. The apprehension etched upon her once beautiful face was met with compassion on his. She buried her head in her hands and cried uncontrolled. Simon immediately beckoned for a servant. This, this is outrageous, he thought. This, this is a private engagement, a respectable, godly home. And this, this, this woman, this prostitute, is turning it into a circus. Simon beckoned again, his irritation deepening. He glanced at his guest, how embarrassed the stranger now must feel. But when Simon looked again, he looked closely at his face, and he was puzzled. He didn't know how to interpret this stranger's expression. The woman loosened the stopper of the flask and began pouring its contents over the stranger's feet. Tears and oil mingled as she massaged his feet. Normally, this action would have appeared sensuous, but somehow it seemed more like an act of worship. The woman reached up and unfastened her hair clasp. Her long black hair tumbled free. She lowered her head, began wiping the oil and tears from the stranger's feet with her hair. Now Simon was furious. First, this woman had the gall to enter his home uninvited. And then second, the stranger was undoubtedly a fraud. He, Simon, had been deceived into entertaining a fraud a man of any spiritual discernment, not to mention one parading around as the Messiah, would know that this prostitute, this woman groveling at his feet should be sent away. 
He was still scowling when the stranger turned to him. You see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a, a, a kiss, but this, this woman from the time she entered hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she has loved much. Simon seized with anger and embarrassment. This guest was clearly inferring that this woman had shown more hospitality than he had. It was an outrage, an insult. He was in his own home, and the stranger was making him feel like, like a sinner. A little tense, wouldn't you say? As we observe Jesus today, we find him caught in the drama recorded, as we said, from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, which has capsulized a little parable in the midst of it, and we see Jesus under pressure, pushed in a corner, expected to deal with the unexpected, when in the middle of a highly conservative, politically sensitive dinner party, he is forced to deal with a sinner. In Luke chapter 7, verse 37, we are introduced to the woman who the scriptures simply identify with those words, a sinner. In this passage, there is no clear reference as to the nature of her sin, but as understood in the context of this account, most biblical scholars routinely agree this woman was an immoral person, a loose woman, most probably a, a prostitute. However, it is important for us to note that in the New Testament, the word which is usually translated sinner is taken from the Greek verb hamartano, which literally means to miss the mark, like, a, like a, an arrow shooting towards a target and veering off. It's missing the mark. It's hamartano. A sinner is someone who's missing the mark of godliness and drifting off. But uh, this word also is rooted in the word mariano, which means to extinguish or to pass away or to fade away. Therefore, a sinner is someone who is missing the mark morally or in any other way, and as a result, someone who is fading away, someone who is passing away, someone who is becoming extinguished, unimportant, insignificant. Know anyone like that? This must have been how Jesus understood a sinner because when we examine the interaction between Jesus and the sinner, we discover that Jesus comforted the woman. Isn't that refreshing? Notice in this account what he did not do. He did not ignore the woman. I just hope she goes away. You know, he did, he did not interrogate her. Who are you? What, what do you want? What are you doing? Neither did he, he insist of her. You, you shouldn't be here, so leave, leave now. This isn't an appropriate time or place. You could see me later. 
Instead, he acknowledged her presence. We know that because he said, Simon, did you see this woman? Then he assessed her condition that she was a sinner, verse 47. And then he approved her behavior that she has loved much, verse 47. And Jesus, in all of that, simply accepted her before declaring to her in verse 48 and 50, Woman, your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, to our knowledge, this woman had not sinned against Jesus directly, except maybe to embarrass him at a dinner party. So it would be safe to say that the forgiveness which he pronounced upon her applied to the sins of her entire life and became, in effect, a proclamation of good news, the best news ever which she could ever possibly matter happen in her life and which could ever have been heard by humankind in general. That the living God is in the business of forgiving people. If this Jesus is the Messiah, the living God, he's in the business of forgiving people. That if we forgive, if we need forgiveness, if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge we are sinners, as the woman did, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive as us of all of our sins and to cleanse all of us of all unrighteousness, to make right all relationships so first and essentially only words that Jesus spoke to the woman per pertain to forgiveness. Isn't that interesting? But notice carefully the precise words which he used in verse 48 saying to her, your sins have been forgiven. Not your sins will be forgiven once you get your life together. Not your sins are forgiven because you've done this act of worship. But your sins have been forgiven. In essence, the problem's been settled already. Provision's already been made. God has taken the initiative. Forgiveness is available for the taking. It's a gift. The decision is yours to receive it. Your recognition, confession of sin is the key. Your faith has saved you, he said to her. Go in peace. Not her faith in herself or her, her ability to get her life together, but her faith in the one who she knew represented love and was the embodiment of God himself. Go in peace. For that woman, for that woman as for all of us, Jesus' proclamation of forgiveness was a declaration of freedom. Freedom. In the New Testament, there are two Greek words which the English language translates forgiveness. One is charizomai, which refers to offering a gift of grace, which is truly a measure of forgiveness. The other is aphiomai, which we find translated in this passage, in chapter 7 in Luke, which literally means to untie a knot and which refers to letting go, releasing, pardoning. It really means to set free. The dynamic of relationship between Jesus and the woman was characterized by the kind of grace which accepted her, 
so as to open up the narrow, confining, extinguishing box of this woman's life, of this entrapped prostitute, and to set her free. Jesus' unfaltering agenda at that dinner party in Bethany centuries ago was to set this woman, this polluted sinner, free. And he is doing that in dinner parties and assembly lines and back alleys and school hallways and children's bedrooms to this day. Setting people free. When we examine the interaction between Jesus and the sinner, we discover that first Jesus comforted the woman. But second, Jesus confronted the Pharisee. Why? Because the Pharisee had been rude to Jesus? He had been rude. Because he was judgmental of this woman? Yes, he was judgmental of this woman. Because he was aligned with self-righteousness, with religiosity, with rigidity? Yes, all of these things are true. So essentially, Jesus confronted the Pharisee because the Pharisee was a sinner also. Not in the same way as the woman, not with the same consequences as the woman, but with the same need as the woman. The need to be forgiven. And with the skill of a master teacher, Jesus both defended the woman and disturbed the Pharisee as he shared that simple story, the parable that we are looking at today. And posed one simple question, saying in Luke chapter 7, verse 41 to 43, Simon, a simple, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were both unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? The question. The Pharisee's answer was obvious and logical. Well, I, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. With his own words, the Pharisee peered through a window of truth and saw a reflection of himself looking back. The assumption of the parable was so clear. The size of the debt was immaterial. Both debtors needed forgiveness. The implication of the parable was inescapable. The Pharisee was like the woman, both needing forgiveness. But just to make sure the Pharisee caught it, Jesus levied the application in the next few verses we read that turning to the woman, Jesus said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, hasn't ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, and yet she's anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she has loved much. But he, in quotations maybe you, Simon, who is forgiven little, loves little. It's important to note that Jesus actually invested much more 
relational time and energy with the Pharisee than with the prostitute. As strange as it may seem, the Pharisee was much more difficult to set free than the prostitute. Essentially because he didn't see his sin. He didn't see his entrapment. The Pharisee looked clean, but he wasn't. The Pharisee thought he had his act together, but he didn't. The Pharisee believed that people should take stock of their lives, but he wouldn't. So out of concern for the Pharisee, in an effort to break through a facade and get to the heart of the Pharisee's life with his desire to put aside, which was politically correct, to move beyond the shadow of niceties of religious protocol, to go deeper, to actually get to build a relationship of substance with this Pharisee, Jesus opted to risk his own reputation, his personal safety, his incredible opportunity for a comfortable, congenial dialogue with one of the movers and shakers of his day, not to mention an invitation to a great meal. He did all of that. He risked all of that so as to open up this narrow, confining, extinguishing box of this entrapped leader so as to reveal the sin of the Pharisee as well as his need for forgiveness, so as to set the Pharisee, that pious sinner, free. This is really a story of two sinners, two people in boxes, two people confined by their own lifestyles and their own belief systems, of two people in the dark, unable to see themselves for who they really were, of two people needing a fresh start, needing a new opportunity, needing forgiveness. These two biblical characters, the prostitute and the Pharisee, represent two broad categories of people in this world to this day who need forgiveness. Those who know they need it and those who don't. As we observe Jesus in action, building relationships with these two sinners, it's no coincidence that we observe his love for them side by side, compelling Jesus to treat them quite differently. With one sinner, the woman, Jesus emphasized grace because the truth of her sin was very apparent and very accessible to her. But the grace of God which she needed to set her free, it wasn't that apparent to her, thanks to religiosity. When the other sinner, the Pharisee, was meeting with Jesus, Jesus emphasized the truth because the grace of God was very apparent and very accessible to this Pharisee. But the truth of his sin was not. The truth that this Pharisee needed to set him to be set free was not apparent. The goal was the same, forgiveness and freedom for both. The process was people-centered, was dependent upon the need of the person. And that is why leading anyone to a place where they actually can receive forgiveness, where they are actually able to be set free, is a task of getting involved in that someone's life. So as to get to know that someone, 
And sometimes that means confronting that person, and sometimes that means comforting that person. But always it means being in relationship with that person who needs to be set free. The relationship between Jesus and the sinner is always characterized by freedom. And that is precisely what is meant to epitomize our relationships. Freedom through forgiveness. Can you imagine anything more exciting than setting someone free? What can be better in this life than, than that? Than, than to be bearers of good news. Getting close enough to people to understand where they are at and let them know that we love them and accept them as people regardless of their sin, regardless of their struggle, regardless of their cynicism. We accept them as people who need to be loved. In different ways, yes, but love nonetheless. To win the trust of that other and to become the voice of God in that other's life. To share with them all of the love of God and help untangle the knots of their lives. To become agents of new life in Christ, leading someone to experience the power of change in their life. How can it be better than that? Is there anything better in our day to day? How do we do that? Well, first, setting someone free insists that we are free. So this passage, first of all, begs us to ask ourselves a question. Are you? Are you free? At times, you may feel more like the woman, guilty, broken, dirty, defeated extinguishing. At other times, you may feel more like the Pharisee, angry, religious, judgmental. In either case, I am here to declare to you today, you can be free because you've already been forgiven. And Lord Jesus, we pray that when you come close to our lives and sit down around the tables with us and converse with our situations, that whether or not we feel your comfort or your confrontation, we will take that look again into your eyes and discover your heart and know your agenda to forgive and to set free again and again and yet again. You will know the truth, you told us, and the truth will set you free. Then you'll really be free. Lord, we would seek to be really free people so free that we can be freedom livers and freedom givers. In Jesus' name we pray.